In today's chapter, Poirot is rifling through Emily and Alfred Engelthorpe's boudoirs. There is a duplicate key, documents in the fireplace, strange handwriting, spilt candle wax and spilt salt. Or is it? Hey doll. Chapter 4! Poirot is finally at Styles Mansion. The investigation begins and it is a whirlwind of a chapter. Can he solve this mysterious locked room poisoning? Well, it is most likely that he will, but how will it be solved? What clues has the murderer left behind? And what are the motives? This is a long chapter, and I know it's gonna take me forever to edit. <laughs> so please like and subscribe to show support. Quick heads up, there's a few illustrations in this episode, chapter. So keep an eye out for them. I will include the illustrations in the thumbnail and the episode art. You'll find them somewhere. Chapter 4. Poirot Investigates The house which the Belgians occupied in the village was quite close to the park gates. One could save time by taking a narrow path through the long grass which cut off the detours of the winding drive. So I, accordingly, went that way. I had nearly reached the lodge when my attention was arrested by the running figure of a man approaching me. It was Mr. Englethorpe. Where had he been? How did he intend to explain his absence? He accosted me eagerly. My God, this is terrible. My poor wife. I only just heard. Where have you been? I asked. Denby kept me late last night. It was nine o'clock before we had finished. Then I found that I'd forgotten the latchkey after all. I didn't want to arouse the household, so Denby gave me a bed. How did you hear the news? I asked. Wilkins knocked Denby up to tell him. My poor Emily, she was so self-sacrificing. Such a noble character. She overtaxed her strength. A wave of revulsion swept over me. What a consummate hypocrite the man was. I must hurry on, I said. Thankful he did not ask me whither I was bound. In a few minutes, I was knocking at the door of Leastways Cottage. Getting no answer, I repeated my summons impatiently. A window above me was cautiously opened, and Poirot himself looked out. He gave an exclamation of surprise at seeing me. In a few brief words, I explained the tragedy that had occurred, and I wanted his help. Wait, my friend, I will let you in, and you shall recount the affair to me whilst I get dressed. In a few moments, he had unbarred the door, and I followed him up to his room. There, he installed me in a chair, and I related the whole story, keeping back nothing, and omitting no circumstance, however insignificant, whilst he himself made a careful and deliberate toilet. Uh, <laughs> I still laugh at this, right? I had to look this up because I thought this meant he had to force the poo. <laughs> I know, I'm so gross. A deliberate toilet, though. Come on. It's so gross. But apparently it means to, like, wash yourself, get changed, and, like, do yourself up kind of, kind of thing. It's a very interesting insight into that word. Anyway, so Poirot isn't forcing a poo. He's getting changed. I told him of my awakening, of Mrs. Inglethorpe's dying words, of her husband's absence, of the quarrel the day before, of the scrap of conversation between Mary and her mother-in-law that I overheard, of the former quarrel between Mrs. Inglethorpe and Evelyn Howard, and of the latter's innuendos. I was hardly as clear as I wish I could be. I repeated myself several times and occasionally had to go back to some detail that I had forgotten. Poirot smiled kindly on me. The mind is confused, is it not so? Take time, mon ami. You are agitated. You are excited. It is but natural. Presently, when we are calmer, we will arrange the facts. 
neatly, each in its proper place. We will examine and reject. Those of importance we will put on one side. Those of no importance, poof! He screwed up his cherub-like face and puffed comically enough. Blow them away! That's all very well. But how are you going to decide what is important and what isn't? That always seems the difficulty to me. Poirot shook his head energetically. He was now arranging his moustache with exquisite care. Not so, voyons. One fact leads to another, so we continue. Does the next fit with that? A marvel! Good, we can proceed. This little fact? No. Ah, that is curious. There is something missing. A link in the chain that is not there. We examine, we search. And that little curious fact, that possibly paltry little detail, that will not tally, we put it here. He made an extravagant gesture with his hand. It is significant. It is tremendous. Oh my god, he is so dramatic. <laughs> oh my gosh. A flair for the drama. Like me. Mon ami. Yes. Ah, Poirot shook his forefinger so fiercely at me that I quailed before it. Beware, periled to the detective who says, It is so small, it doesn't matter. It will not agree, I will forget it. That way lies confusion. Everything matters. I know you always told me that. That's why I have gone into all the details of this thing, whether they seem to me relevant or not. And I am pleased with you. You have a good memory. And you have given me the facts faithfully. Of the order in which you present them, I say nothing. Truly, it is deplorable. But I make allowances. You are upset. To that I attribute the circumstance that you have omitted one fact of paramount importance. What is that? I asked. You have not told me if Mrs. Inglethorpe ate well last night. I stared at him. Surely the war had affected the little man's brain. He was carefully engaged in brushing his coat before putting it on, and seemed wholly engrossed in the task. I don't remember, I said. And anyway, I don't see... You do not see, but it is of the first importance. I can't see why, I said, rather nettled. As far as I can remember, she didn't eat much. She was obviously upset and that had taken her appetite away. That was only natural. Yes, said Poirot thoughtfully. It was only natural. Hmm, I can't remember Hastings talking about Emily's eating habits. I do remember that he said that she was the last to come down to supper. He opened a drawer and took out a small dispatch case, then turned to me. Now I am ready, we shall proceed to the chateau and study matters on the spot. Excuse me, mon ami, you dressed in haste and your tie is on one side. Permit me. With a deft gesture, he rearranged it. Sa ya est. Now shall we start? We hurried up the village and turned in at the lodge gates. Poirot stopped for a moment and gazed sorrowfully over the beautiful expanse of park, still glittering with morning dew. So beautiful. So beautiful. And yet, the poor family plunged in sorrow, prostrated with grief. He looked at me keenly as he spoke, and I was aware that I reddened under his prolonged gaze. Was the family prostrated by grief? Was the sorrow at Miss Inglethorpe's death so great? I realised that there was an emotional lack in the atmosphere. The dead woman had not the gift of commanding love. Her death was a shock and a distress, but she would not be passionately regretted. Poirot seemed to follow my thoughts. He nodded his head gravely. Oh, how sad that no one is, like, truly sad <laughs> over her death. Oh, poor Emily. No, you were right, he said. It is not as though there was a blood tie. 
She had been kind and generous to these Cavendishes, but she was not their own mother. Blood tells. Always remember that. Blood tells. What does that mean? That they won't be as close? As if they were biologically related? I have to disagree. Rude. Poirot, I said. I wish you would tell me why you wanted to know if Mrs. Inglethorpe ate well last night. I have been turning it over in my mind, but I can't see how it has anything to do with the matter. He was silent for a minute or two as we walked along, but finally he said, I do not mind telling you though. As you know, it is not my habit to explain until the end is reached. The present contention is that Mrs. Inglethorpe died of strychnine poisoning, presumably administered in her coffee? Yes. Well, what time was the coffee served? About eight o'clock. That is so late to be drinking coffee. Therefore, she drank it between then and half past eight. Certainly not much later. Yeah, because that's so late. Well, strychnine is a very rapid poison. Its effects would be felt very soon, probably in about an hour. Yet, in Mrs. Inglethorpe's case, the symptoms do not manifest themselves until five o'clock in the morning. Nine hours! But a heavy meal taken at about the same time as the poison might retard its effects. Though hardly to say that extent. Still, it is a possibility to be taken into account. But according to you, she ate very little for supper. And yet the symptoms do not develop until early the next morning. Now that is a curious circumstance, my friend. Something may arise in the autopsy to explain it. In the meantime, remember it. As we neared the house, John came out and met us. His face looked weary and haggard. This is very dreadful business, Monsieur Poirot. He said, Hastings has explained to you that we are anxious for no publicity. I comprehend perfectly. You see, it is only suspicion so far. We have nothing to go upon. Precisely. It is a matter of precaution only. John turned to me, taking out his cigarette case and lighting a cigarette as he did so. You know that fellow Inglethorpe is back. Yes, I met him. John flung the match into the adjacent flower bed, a proceeding which was too much for Poirot's feelings. He retrieved it and buried it neatly. Oh my gosh, how OCD. It's jolly difficult to know how to treat him. That difficulty will not exist long, pronounced Poirot quietly. John looked puzzled, not quite understanding the portent of this cryptic saying. He handed the two keys which Dr. Bowerstein had given to me. Show Monsieur Poirot everything he wants to see. The rooms are locked, asked Poirot. Dr. Bowerstein considered it advisable. Poirot nodded thoughtfully. Then he is very sure. That simplifies matters for us. We went up together to the room of the tragedy. For convenience, I append a plan of the room and the principal articles of furniture in it. I assume this is not to scale. <laughs> the bed and the wardrobe are basically the same size. Why is the bed so small? Oh, look, there's a washstand. You know, I've always loved those. My uncle has one of those in his house, in like one of the bedrooms. It just makes so much sense to be able to like brush your teeth and like do your face. Like without... You don't need, always need a toilet and a shower. Maybe just, just a sink. Bring it back. I want one. Poirot locked the door on the inside and proceeded to a minute inspection of the room. He darted from one object to the other with the agility of a grasshopper. I remained by the door, fearing to obliterate any clues. Poirot, however, did not seem grateful to me for my forbearance. What have you, my friend? He cried. That you remain there like, how do you say it? Ah, yes, the stuck pig? I explained that I was afraid of obliterating any footmarks. Footmarks? But what an idea. There has already been practically an army in the room. What footmarks are we likely to find? No, come here and aid me in my search. 
I will put down my little case until I need it. He did so on the round table by the window. But it was an ill-advised proceeding, for the top of it being loose, it tilted up and precipitated the dispatch case on the floor. Evola in table, cried Poirot. Ah, my friend, one may live in a big house and yet have no comfort. After which piece of moralising, he resumed his search. A small purple dispatch case with a key in the lock on the writing table engaged his attention for some time. He took out the key from the lock and passed it to me to inspect. I saw nothing peculiar, however. It was an ordinary key of yield type, with a bit of twisted wire through the handle. Next, he examined the framework of the door we had broken in, assuring himself that the bolt had already been shot. Then he went to the door opposite, leading into Cynthia's room. That door was also bolted, as I stated. However, he went to the length of unbolting it, and opening and shutting it several times. This he did with the utmost precaution against making any noise. Suddenly, something in the bolt itself seemed to rivet his attention. He examined it carefully, and then, nimbly whipping out a pair of small forceps from his case, he drew out some miniature particle, which he carefully sealed up in a tiny envelope. What was that? Let us know. So mysterious, a ferret styles. On the chest of drawers there was a tray with a spirit lamp and a small saucepan on it. A small quantity of dark fluid remained in the saucepan and an empty cup and saucer that had been drunk out of stood near it. I wondered how I could have been so unobservant to overlook this. Here was a clue worth having. Poirot delicately dipped his finger into the liquid and tasted it gingerly. He made a grimace. Cocoa with, I think, rum in it? Oh gosh, be careful. He passed on to the debris on the floor, where the table by the bed had been overturned. A reading lamp, some books, matches, a bunch of keys, and the crushed fragments of a coffee cup lay scattered about. Ah, this is curious, said Poirot. I must confess, I see nothing particularly curious about it. You do not? Observe the lamp. The chimney is broken in two places. They lie here as they fell. But see, the coffee cup is absolutely smashed to powder. Well, I said wearily, I suppose someone must have stepped on it. Exactly, said Poirot in an odd voice. Someone stepped on it. He rose from his knees and walked slowly across to the mantelpiece, where he stood abstractly fing <laughs> fingering the ornaments and straightening them, a trick of his when he was agitated. Mon ami, he said, turning to me. Somebody stepped on that cup, grinding it to a powder. And the reason they did so was either because it contained strychnine or, which is far more serious, because it did not contain strychnine. Did not constrain strict contain strychnine? How is that more serious? Hmm. I'm so intrigued. Also, is Emily in the room while this is happening? Where is her body? Anyway, back to the cup. I made no reply. I was bewildered, but I knew that it was no good asking him to explain. In a moment or two, he roused himself and went on with his investigations. He picked up the bunch of keys from the floor and twirling them round his fingers, finally selected one. Very bright and shiny, which he tried in the lock of the purple dispatch case. It fitted. He opened the lock, but after a moment's hesitation, closed and relocked it and slipped the bunch of keys, as well as the key that had originally stood in the lock, into his own pocket. I have no authority to go through these papers, but it should be done at once. He then made a very careful examination of the drawers of the washstand, crossing the room to the left-hand window, a round stain hardly visible on the dark brown carpet. 
seemed to interest him particularly. He went down on his knees, examining it minutely, even going as far as to smell it. We have found in this room, he said, writing busily, six points of interest. Shall I enumerate them or shall you? Oh, you, I replied hastily. Very well, then. One, a coffee cup has been ground into powder. Two, a dispatch case with a key in the lock. Three, a stain on the floor. That may have been done some time ago, I interrupted. No, for it is still perceptibly damp and smells of coffee. Four, a fragment of dark green fabric. Only a thread or two, but recognisable. Ah, I cried. That is what you sealed up in the envelope. Yes, it may turn out to be a piece of one of Mrs. Inglethorpe's own dresses and quite unimportant. We shall see. Five, this, with a dramatic gesture, he pointed to a large splash of candle grease on the floor by the writing table. It must have been done since yesterday. Otherwise, a good housemaid would have once removed it with blotting paper and a hot iron. One of my best hats once, but that is not to the point. It was very likely done last night. We were very agitated. Or perhaps Mrs. Inglethorpe herself dropped her candle. You brought only one candle into the room. Yes, Lawrence Cavendish was carrying it, but he was very upset. He seemed to see something over here, I indicated at the mantelpiece. That absolutely paralysed him. That's interesting, said Poirot quickly. Yes, it is suggestive, his eye sweeping the whole length of the wall. But it was not his candle that made this great patch, for you perceive that this is white grease. Whereas Monsieur Lawrence's candle, which is still on the dressing table, is pink. On the other hand, Mrs. Inglethorpe had no candlestick in the room, only a reading lamp. Then I said, what do you deduce? To which my friend only made a rather irritating reply, urging me to use my own natural faculties. And the sixth point? I asked. I suppose it is the sample of cacao. No, said Poirot thoughtfully. I might have included that in the sixth, but I did not. No, this sixth point I will keep to myself for the present. How sneaky. <laughs> he looked quickly around the room. There is nothing more to be done here, I think. Unless, he stared earnestly and long at the dead ashes in the grate. The fire burns, and it destroys. But by chance there might be. Let us see. Deftly, on hands and knees, he began to sort the ashes from the grate into the fender, handling them with the greatest caution. Suddenly, he gave a faint exclamation. <gasps> the forceps hastings. I quickly handed them to him, and with skill he extracted a small piece of half-charred paper. There, mon ami, he cried. What do you think of that? I scrutinised the fragment. This is an exact reproduction of it. I was puzzled. It was unusually thick, quite unlike ordinary note paper. Suddenly, an idea struck me. Poirot, I cried. This is a fragment of a will. Exactly. I looked up at him sharply. You are not surprised? No, he said gravely. I expected it. Oh, remember Hastings did mention that the fire was like still aglow or like there was still embers or something? Like, like it was slowly burning out. Oh my God, the will has been burnt. Who has done this? Like, but everybody's a suspect. No, well, who would she not put in the will? Hmm. I don't Did she write a new will or with an old will? Hmm. Oh, it's all... Heating up, I relinquished the piece of paper and watched him put it away in his case, with the same methodical care that he bestowed on everything. My brain was in a whirl. What was this complication of a will? Who had destroyed it? The person who had left the candle grease on the floor? 
obviously. But had anyone gained admission? All the doors have been bolted on the inside. Oh my God. Did Emily burn it? Is she crazy? Rip. Now, my friend, said Poirot briskly, we will go. I should like to ask a few questions of the parlour maid. Dorcas, her name is, is it not? We passed through Alfred Inglethorpe's room and Poirot delayed long enough to make a brief but fairly comprehensive examination of it. We went out through that door, locking both it and Mrs Inglethorpe's room as before. I took him down to the boudoir, which he had expressed a wish to see, and went myself in search of Dorcas. When I returned with her, however, the boudoir was empty. Poirot, I cried, where are you? I am here, my friend. He had stepped outside the French window and was standing apparently lost in admiration before the various shaped flower beds. Admirable, he murmured. Admirable. What symmetry. Observe that crescent and those diamonds. Their neatness rejoices the eye. The spacing of the plants also is perfect. It has been recently done, is it not so? Yes, I believe they were at it yesterday afternoon. But come in, Dorcas is here. A bien, a bien. Do not begrudge me a moment's satisfaction of the eye. Yes, but this affair is much more important. And how do you know that these fine begonias are not of equal importance? I shrugged my shoulders. There was really no arguing with him if he chose to take that line. You do not agree? But such things have been. Well, we will come in and interview the brave Dorcas. Dorcas was standing in the boudoir, her hands folded in front of her and her grey hair rose in stiff waves under her white cap. She was the very model and picture of an old-fashioned... of a good old-fashioned servant. Oh, Lord. This book doesn't age very well. I'm picturing, like, Dorcas as, like, a stereotypical maid, like, in Mary Poppins, like, you know, those maids. That's my vision of her. <laughs> in her attitude towards Poirot, she was inclined to be suspicious, but she soon broke down her defences, he drew forward a chair. Pray be seated, mademoiselle. Thank you, sir. You have been with your mistress many years, is it not so? Ten years, sir. That is a long time and very faithful service. You were much attached to her, were you not? She was a very good mistress to me, sir. Then you will not object to answering a few questions. I put them to you with Mr. Cavendish's full approval. Oh, certainly, sir. Then I will begin by asking you about the events of yesterday afternoon. Your mistress had a quarrel? Yes, sir. But I don't know that I ought... Dorcas hesitated. Poirot looked at her keenly. My good Dorcas, it is necessary that I should know every detail of that quarrel as fully as possible. Do not think that you are betraying your mistress's secrets. Your mistress lies dead. And it is necessary that we should know all if we are to avenge her. Nothing can bring her back to life. But we do hope, if there has been foul play to bring the murderer to justice. Well said, Poirot. Well said. Also, I'm very excited to know what the whole argument bust up was that Dorcas was overhearing. Amen to that, said Dorcas fiercely, and in naming no names. There's one in this house that none of us could ever abide, and an ill day it was when he first darkened the threshold. Why does everybody in this story speak in riddles? Who is he? Why won't you say his name? Stop being so mysterious. A ferret styles. Poirot waited for her indignation to subside, and then, resuming his business-like tone, he asked, Now, as to this quarrel, what is the first you heard of it? Well, sir, I happened to be going along the hall outside yesterday. What time was that? I couldn't say exactly, sir, but it wasn't tea time by a long way. Perhaps four o'clock, but it may have been a bit later. Well, sir, as I said, I happened to be passing along when I heard voices, 
very loud and angry in here. I didn't exactly mean to listen, but well, there it is. I stopped. The door was shut, but the mistress was speaking very sharp and clear, and I heard what she said quite plainly. You have lied to me. You have deceived me, she said. I didn't hear what Mr. Inglethorpe replied. He spoke a good bit lower than she did. But she answered, how dare you? I have kept you and clothed you and fed you. You owe everything to me. And this is how you repay me? By bringing disgrace upon our name? Again, I didn't hear what he said. But she went on. Nothing that you can say will make any difference. I see my duty clearly. My mind is made up. You need not think of any fear of publicity or scandal between husband and wife will deter me. Then I thought I heard them coming out, so I went off quickly. So it sounds like Emily confronted Alfred about the alleged affair that Evelyn told her about. It's And it sounds like it's true. Like, well, we don't know what he said, but it sounds it sounds like he confessed. Or it is possible that Alfred has like, well, like, lost money because he had to go sell estates that night in the town. Are you sure it was Mr Inglethorpe's voice? Oh yes sir, who else could it be? Well what happened next? Later I came back to the hall but it was all quiet. At five o'clock Mrs Inglethorpe rang the bell and told me to bring her a cup of tea. Nothing to eat to the boudoir. She was looking dreadful, so white and upset. Dorcas, she says, I've had a great shock. I'm sorry to hear that mum. I says. You'll feel better after a nice hot cup of tea, mum. She had something in her hand. I don't know if it was a letter or just a piece of paper, but it had writing on it and she kept staring at it, almost as if she couldn't believe what was written on there. She whispered to herself as though she had forgotten I was there. These few words and everything's changed. And then she says to me, never trust a man, Dorcas. They're not worth it. I hurried off and got her a good strong cup of tea. And she thanked me and she said she would feel better once she's drunk it. I don't know what to do, she says. Scandal between husband and wife is a dreadful thing, Dorcas. I'd rather hush it up if I could. Mrs Cavendish came in just then, so she didn't say any more. She still had the letter or whatever it was in her hand? Yes, sir. What would she be likely to do with it afterwards? Well, I don't know, sir. I expect she would lock it up in that purple case of hers. Is that where she usually kept important papers? Yes, sir. She brought it down with her every morning and tuck it up every night. When did she lose the key of it? She missed it yesterday at lunchtime, sir, and told me to look carefully for it. She was very much put out by it. But she had a duplicate key. Oh yes, sir. Dorcas was looking very curiously at him, and to tell the truth, so was I. What was all this about a lost key? Poirot smiled. Never mind, Dorcas, it is my business to know things. Is this the key that was lost? He drew from his pocket the key that he had found in the lock on the dispatch case upstairs. Dorcas's eyes looked as though they would pop out of her head. That's it, sir, right enough. But where did you find it? I looked everywhere for it. Ah, but you see, it was not in the same place yesterday as it was today. Now, to pass on to another subject. Had your mistress a dark green dress in her wardrobe? Dorcas was rather startled by the unexpected question. No, sir. Are you quite sure? Oh, yes, sir. Has anyone else in the house got a green dress? Dorcas reflected. Miss Cynthia has a green evening dress. Oh my God, Cynthia, she was in the room. She has access to poisons. Maybe she wasn't in the will, but then why would she? Maybe she was, or maybe she was threatening to take her out of the will, but she does have access to poisons. Light or dark green? A light green, sir. A sort of chiffon, they call it. Ah, that is not what I want. Anybody else have anything green? No, sir, not that I know of. 
why Rose's face did not betray a trace of whether he was disappointed or otherwise. He merely remarked, Good, we will leave that and pass on. Have you any reason to believe that your mistress was likely to take a sleeping powder last night? Not last night, sir. I know she didn't. Why do you know positively? Because the box was empty. She took the last one two days ago. And she didn't have any more made up. Are you quite sure of that? Positive, sir. Then that is cleared up. By the way, your mistress didn't ask you to sign any paper yesterday. To sign a paper? No, sir. When Mr. Hastings and Mr. Lawrence came in yesterday evening, they found your mistress busy writing letters. I suppose you can give me no idea to whom these letters were addressed? Oh, the letters. I knew they were going to come back into the story. Obviously, they mentioned it like five times in the first two chapters. I'm afraid I couldn't, sir. I was out in the evening. Perhaps Annie could tell you, though she's a careless girl. Never cleared the coffee cups away last night. That's what happens when I'm not here to look after things. Poirot lifted his hand. Since they have been left out, Dorcas, leave them a little longer. I pray you. I should like to examine them. Very well, sir. What time did you go out last evening? About six o'clock, sir. Thank you, Dorcas. That is all I have to ask you. He rose and strolled to the window. I have been admiring these flower beds. How many gardeners are employed here, by the way? Only three now, sir. Five we had before the war, when it was kept as a gentleman's place should be. I wish you could have seen it then, sir. A fair sight it was. But now there is only old Manning and young William, and a new-fashioned woman gardener in breeches and such like. Ah, oh, these are dreadful times. <laughs> oh, gosh. A woman gardener. What is the world coming to? Dorcas, I liked you for a second. The good times will come again, Dorcas. At least we hope so. Now, will you send Annie to me here? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. How did you know that Mrs. Inglethorpe took sleeping powders? I asked in a lively curiosity as Dorcas left the room. And about the lost key and the duplicate? One thing at a time. As to the sleeping powders, I knew by this. He suddenly produced a small cardboard box, such as chemists use for powders. Cynthia? She's kind of a chemist. We're back to Cynthia again. Where did you find it? In the washstand drawer in Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom. It was number six of my catalogue, but I suppose as the last powder was taken two days ago, it is not of much importance. Probably not. But do you notice anything that strikes you as peculiar about this box? I examined it closely. No, I can't say that I do. Look at the label. I read the label carefully. One powder to be taken at bedtime if required. Mrs. Inglethorpe. No, I see nothing unusual. Not the fact that there is no chemist's name? Ah, I exclaimed. To be sure, that is odd. Have you ever known a chemist to send out a box like that without his printed name? No, I can't say that I have. I was becoming quite excited, but Poirot dampened my ardour by remarking, yet the explanation is quite simple. So do not intrigue yourself, my friend. An audible creaking proclaimed the approach of Annie, so I had no time to reply. Wait, what's the, what's the simple explanation? If it's so simple, just sit quick. We're not going to know. Annie was a fine, strapping girl and was evidently labouring under intense excitement, mingled with a certain ghoulish enjoyment of the tragedy. Poirot came to the point at once, with a business-like briskness. I sent for you, Annie, because I thought you might be able to tell me something about the letters Mrs Inglethorpe wrote last night. How many were there, and can you tell me any of the names and addresses? Annie considered. There were four letters, sir. One was to Miss Howard, and one was to Mr Wells, the lawyer. And the other two, I don't think I remember. Sir, oh, yes. One was to Ross's, the caterers and that minister. The other one, I don't remember. Think, urged Poirot. Annie racked her brains in vain. 
I'm sorry, sir, but it's clean gone. I don't think I can have noticed it. It does not matter, said Poirot, not betraying any sign of disappointment. Now I want to ask you about something else. There's a saucepan in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room with some cacao in it. Did she have that every night? Yes, sir. It was put in her room every evening, and she warmed it up in the night whenever she fancied it. What was it? Plain cacao? Yes, sir. Made with milk, with a teaspoon of sugar, and two teaspoons of rum in it. Who took it to her room? I did, sir. Always? Yes, sir. At what time? When I went to draw the curtains as a rule, sir. Did you bring it straight up from the kitchen then? No, sir. You see, there's not much room on the gas stove. So, Cook used to make it early, before putting the vegetables on for supper. Then I used to bring it up and put it on the table by the swing door, and take it to her room later. The swing door is in the left wing, is it not? Yes, sir. And the table. Is it on this side of the door? Or the father-servant side? It's this side, sir. What time did you bring it up last night? About quarter past seven, I should say, sir. And when did you take it into Mrs. Inglethorpe's room? When I went to shut up, sir. About eight o'clock. Mrs. Inglethorpe came up to bed before I finished. Then, between 7.15 and 8 o'clock, the cacao was standing on the table in the left wing? Yes, sir. Annie had been growing redder and redder in the face, and now she blurted out unexpectedly, And if there was salt in it, sir, it wasn't me. I never took the salt near it. What makes you think there was salt in it? asked Poirot. Seeing it on the tray, sir, you saw some salt on the tray? Yes, coarse kitchen salt it looked. I never noticed it when I took the mistress's tray up. But when I came to take it into the mistress's room, I saw it at once, and I suppose I ought to have taken it down again and asked the cook to make some fresh. But I was in a hurry because Dorcas was out, and I thought maybe the, the cacao itself was all right, and the salt had only gone on the tray. So I dusted it off with my apron and took it in. Oh my God, Annie, that wasn't salt. What are you doing? I had the utmost difficulty in controlling my excitement. Unknown to herself, Annie had provided us with an important piece of evidence. How she would have gaped if she had realised that her coarse kitchen salt was strychnine, one of the most deadly poisons known to mankind. I marvelled at Poirot's calm. His self-control was astonishing. I awaited his next question with impatience, but it disappointed me. When you went into Mrs Inglethorpe's room, was the door leading to Miss Cynthia's room bolted? Oh, yes, sir. It always has. It always was. It had never been opened. And the door into Mr. Inglethorpe's room. Did you notice if that was bolted too? Annie hesitated. I couldn't say, sir. It was shut, but I couldn't say whether it was bolted or not. When you finally left the room, did Mrs. Inglethorpe bolt the door after you? No, sir, not then. But I expect she did later. She usually did lock it at night. The door into the passage, that is. Did you notice any candle grease on the floor when you did the room yesterday? Candle grease? Oh, no, sir. Mrs. Inglethorpe didn't have a candle. Only a reading lamp. Then if there had been a large patch of candle grease on the floor, you think you would have been sure to have seen it? Yes, sir. And I would have taken it out with a piece of blotting paper and a hot iron. Then Poirot repeated the question he had put to Dorcas. Did your mistress ever have a green dress? No, sir. Nor a mantle, nor a cape, nor a, how do you call it, a sports coat? Not green, sir. Nor anyone else in the house? Annie reflected. No, sir. Are you sure of that? Quite sure. Bien, that is all I want to know. Thank you very much. With a nervous giggle, Annie took herself creakily out of the room. My pent-up excitement burst forth. Poirot, I cried. I congratulate you. This is a great discovery. What is a great discovery? Why, that it was the cacao and not the coffee that was poisoned. That explains everything. 
Of course, it did not take effect until the early morning, since the cacao was only drunk in the middle of the night. So you think that the Macau, mark well what I say, Hastings, the cacao contained the strychnine. Of course, that salt in the tray, what else could it have been? It might have been salt, replied Poirot placidly. It might have been sugar? I shrugged my shoulders. If he was going to take the matter that way, it was no good arguing with him. The idea crossed my mind, not for the first time, that poor old Poirot was growing old. Privately, I thought it lucky that he had associated with him someone of a more receptive type of mind. Poirot was surveying me with quietly twinkling eyes. You are not pleased with me, mon ami. My dear Poirot, I said coldly. It is not for me to dictate to you. You have a right to your own opinion, just as I have to mine. Oh my God, are they going to fall out? Drama! Hastings doesn't get on with men. He only seems to like women. Hastings. A most admirable sentiment, remarked Poirot, rising briskly to his feet. Now I have finished with this room. By the way, whose is the smaller desk in the corner? Mr. Inglethorpe's. Ah, he tried the roll top tentatively. Locked. But perhaps one of Mrs. Inglethorpe's keys would open it. He tried several, twisting and turning them with a practised hand, and finally uttering an ejaculation of satisfaction. Voila! It is not the key, but it will open it in a pinch. He slid back the roll top and ran a rapid eye over the neatly filed papers. To my surprise, he did not examine them, merely remarking approvingly as he relocked the desk. Decidedly, he is a man of method, Mr. Inglethorpe. A man of method? was, in Poirot's estimation, the highest praise that could be bestowed upon any individual. I felt that my friend was not what he had been as he rambled on disconnectedly. There were no stamps in his desk. But there might have been, eh, mon ami? There might have been, yes. His eyes wandered around the room. This boudoir has nothing more to tell us. It did not yield much, only this. He pulled a crumpled envelope out of his pocket and tossed it over to me. It was rather a curious document. A plain, dirty-looking old envelope with a few words scrawled across it, apparently at random. The following is a facsimile of it. Okay, so right now I'm showing a picture of the envelope and it has the words possessed written all over it. It reads possessed, I am possessed, he is possessed, I am possessed, possessed. And sometimes possessed is spelled with three S's and then sometimes it's spelt with four S's and I don't know which one is correct because I don't know how to spell possessed either. It's a, That's a tricky one. Like what? And that's the end of the chapter. Another cliffhanger. Agatha Christie. What are you playing at? Blimey, that was a lot of investigation. Oh, it's hard to take it all in. Crushed coffee cup, candle wax on the floor, white salt-like powder, a key to opening important documents has disappeared then reappeared and someone has a copy of it? Does Dorcas know where the copy is? Dorcas has confirmed that Emily and Alfred were rowing about a scandal between husband and wife. So I wonder what that is. Sounds like an affair at Styles. A will perhaps has been burnt in the fireplace and a piece of dark green thread or fabric still remains unplaced. We have collected many things yet we don't seem to be much further in knowing who, do, are, or maybe we are, maybe I'm just stupid. And we also know that Emily did write back to Evelyn. I wonder what she said. I'm sure we'll, we'll find out because the letter went, went out, right? It made it to the post. So Evelyn's going to come back. 
it seems like we have more questions than answers after this chapter. And honestly, I am so exhausted. Oh, this is a long one. My butt is, is killing me. My butt is so sore. But uh, bring on chapter five. Doll, we are getting rightly through this book. Like we're more than halfway. No, wait. Anyway, slan.